Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to a special episode of the Compliance Report International Edition. Today I have return guest, author, reporter, uh, Adam Davidson. Adam wrote the piece, uh, Trump's Worst Deal, uh, earlier this spring that generated uh, quite a bit of press and coverage, and he has continued to write about the new administration, or I guess they're not new anymore, but the current administration. And he's had a couple of pieces that I wanted to focus on. The first was uh, from the May 12th edition of The New Yorker. The Senate starts to look at Trump's business. And then more recently, on August 17th, he had a piece entitled Piercing the Veil of Secrecy Surrounding, excuse me, Shrouding the Trump Deal in the Republic of Georgia. The Compliance Report International Edition is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, Welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me again. Thanks so much for having me back on, Tom. Great to be on. Uh, Adam, it really seems like the original piece really did generate a lot of conversation. And uh, conversation at the highest levels of government, conversation down on the on the ground with people like myself. Um, a lot of my colleagues read the piece, a lot of discussion kind of in the FCPA world. What were some of the reactions you got? Well, I, I will say my single favorite was um, when Christopher Ray was going through his hearing process to become uh, FBI director. He was asked if he had read my article and what he thought of it. And he said he wasn't familiar with my article. Now, um, I, I'm going to be really obnoxious and say, I bet he was familiar. Cause, uh, <laughs> he had, a, you know, a, a CF, uh, uh, um, uh, he, he had an FCPA practice and, um, but anyway, that it's always kind of thrilling when you're, <laughs> when your name and your work is mentioned. <laughs> in a congressional um, hearing, huh? in a congressional hearing about yeah for something that important um and and just generally i think um i think that there's a growing view that that i have and and others have um that for robert Mueller, the the special counsel looking into possible collusion that these financial deals are a much more productive path of investigation um, than collusion, or, or I guess I should say in addition to potential collusion. And we can get into that and why that might be. But my hunch is the, the letters FCPA are going to be increasingly popular in, in, in the general media. Well, really, it was your uh, August piece about the uh, Republic of Georgia deal that got me thinking along the lines of this is really uh, not simply a a kind of a spider's web, but it's as intricate a puzzle as uh, I have read about in the public record in quite some time. So I was wondering, and and you really talked about all the digging you and your team had to do uh, around the Republic of Georgia. So I was wondering if you might kind of just speak to that and and, and then even add that to the context of the Mueller investigation. Sure. So, so for those who haven't read the article, which I assume is most, um, although I would love it if people did, um, the, uh, the, the article is a deep, look into one of Trump's deals. It was actually a deal, nothing nothing was ever built, but it was a licensing deal for a Trump Tower Batumi. Batumi is a port on the Black Sea in the Republic of Georgia. So we're not talking Atlanta, Georgia, we're talking 
Republic of Georgia, you know, uh, in, in, uh, the caucuses near, uh, um, Azerbaijan and Russia and Kazakhstan. Um, and um, I got interested, actually, because after I finished my previous story about Trump's deal in Azerbaijan, which I and you and some others felt um, might raise some FCPA concerns, um, I, I, it, it occurred to me that, that I was interested in understanding how the Trump organization worked overall and 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 to understand you know was was this one deal that i looked at in azerbaijan an anomaly or was this a typical type of deal and so um and i realized i'd need some help that that's a lot more work than one guy can do alone you know it took me months just to pierce the veil on one azerbaijan deal and um you know there are dozens maybe hundred well over a hundred deals um in total and so i learned about a project at columbia university journalism school looking into um the trump organization's deals i met with them and right away they said you have got to look at the republic of georgia it's just an amazing fascinating troubling deal and so um, that is exactly what I did. And with the enormous help, it's these two, they were graduate students when I met them. They've, they've now finished their graduate program and are fellows at Columbia University, Manuela Andrioni and Inti Pacheco. And I mean, you and I talked a lot last time about some of the most basic failings of due diligence in the Azerbaijan deal. Um, this one was really remarkable at at how minimal the due diligence was. I, I would be surprised if too many of your listeners have clients who would be comfortable with a deal like this. Um, the Trump organization signed a deal with um, some Georgian business people who were, um, had, had until right before uh, the, the Trump organization got into business with them, had been working with someone named Mukhtar Abliazov, and, and some of your listeners will know that name. He's um, associated with what some believe is the largest incident of money laundering in history. Um, and it's a very complicated case all in and of itself. I don't want to go into all the details because it'll um, dominate the conversation, but <clears throat> he's uh, essentially been convicted of, of stealing several billion dollars and laundering several billion dollars of money from Kazakhstan's largest bank. And when the Trump organization got into business with this Georgian entity called the Silk Road Group, they were just at that time dealing with the legal repercussions. They had owned a bank along with Mukhtar Abliazov. Um, they were extremely close to um, another person who was a high-ranking official at the bank with Mukhtar Abliazov. And so it, it, was, it, it was hard to think of more red flags than this deal, a deal that, you know, with somebody who at the time was, and, and, and since um, was identified, a, a deal with people who were closely associated with someone who was seen as one of the top money launderers um, in, in history. So the um, 
The other thing that struck me was the number of entities and companies and shell companies and real companies and perhaps not real companies that you had to try to wade through just to to look into this. And they were literally in countries across the globe, some countries that you might say had a very um, high uh, uh, score on the Corruption Perception Index. Uh, meaning they were not viewed as corrupt, uh, others that had very low scores. But you had so, uh, firms from uh, companies in uh, the Netherlands, Germany, which I think are, are generally viewed as, as not corrupt. And then you had Malta, which is, is viewed you know, in, in the opposite. So it really seemed like there were just layer after layer after layer that you guys had to wade through. Yeah, it was sort of – it was a – kind of a fun and mind-bogglingly complicated process. Um, so so the, the the Trump organization signed a deal with something called the Silk Road Group to build this um, this hotel and, and residence and shopping area um, in, in Batumi. And um, the press accounts were very simple. The Trump organization signed with the Silk Road Group. But as we dug into the details, we discovered that it, it, you know, it was anything but simple. We had um, the Silk Road Group had an extensive practice of for every you know, bit of real estate it owned, for every corporate entity it owned, it would have these nested um, ownership structures where, um, you know, as you said, a company in Georgia's would be le- a, com- a company in Georgia would be legally owned by a company in Malta with a nominee director and, and nominee shareholders. And then that company's legal owner would be a company in the Netherlands or the British Virgin Islands. And then that company's legal owner would be a company in Germany and on and on. And even the companies in Germany um, were technically owned by um, one man, a man named David Borger, as it happens. Um, but we know from David Borger's own comments that he was not the sole owner, that, that there were other owners as well. And so as a result, it, it really was impossible for us as journalists, but I would think a regulator or others, to pierce the veil, fully pierce the veil of ownership. Um, I mean, I like to think we got pretty close, but um, but there there was a deep and deliberate mystery. Now, when I approached the Silk Road Group, you know, they said exactly what you think they'd say. This was for tax efficiency purposes, you know, doesn't prove, and, you know, it's not illegal to register companies in multiple jurisdictions. And, and they actually said to me, if you ask any tax attorney, they'd tell you why this makes sense. But I asked several tax attorneys, including one who helped write the Republic of Georgia's tax laws, and all but one said they could not think of a single reason why this particular ownership structure made any sense. The one guy who was slightly defending of them was 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 a lawyer they themselves recommended I speak with, and even he was fairly tepid in his defense. I mean, he just said, well, it's not necessarily a sign of money laundering or obfuscation, although he too could not think of any particular reason why this particular ownership 
makes sense. And I'd say just as a general rule, something I've learned in this reporting, which probably most of your audience, you know, they know this in their bones. Um, but, but for me was, it's an obvious, but crucial point, which is, and, and look, I don't know that these people were laundering money. I don't know that they did anything wrong. Although, you know, I do feel like I successfully argue that they exhibited many of the warning signs, um, and, and did not have, um, you know, reasonable answers to explain the warning signs. But um, the logic of money laundering is just different than the logic of a business that has, that is a going concern. Um, as, as one person pointed out to me, which is a fairly obvious point, <coughs> when you're laundering money, you've already made your profit. And now you're just trying to get your profit in a condition where it's safe and you can use it in another jurisdiction or whatever. And so the things that really struck me were the things that just didn't seem to make business sense. Um, there, there didn't seem to be any business reason. So having multiple layered companies in multiple jurisdictions, look, we know that large companies like Apple or others might have a layered ownership in two or three jurisdictions for tax purposes. These are multi-billion dollar companies where maybe it's a hassle, maybe it costs more money, but they're saving themselves billions and billions of dollars. But for a relatively small company, you know, a few hundred million in revenue is not nothing, but um, to have four or five nestled companies, I mean, that's, first of all, an enormous burden. I mean, that it just you know, just keeping track of all of that. It also, I think, has the potential of a lot of legal exposure because you could be, you know, sued in multiple jurisdictions. And 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 it just seems to add a layer of complexity that I I just it no one was able to explain to me why any small business person would want to do that. Similarly with the real estate project itself, the this Trump Tower in Batumi. Um Batumi, under the Soviet period, was was a sort of working class resort city, um, and then uh, after the Soviet period, it, it fell in real hard times. It became a place where refugees from the nearby Abkhazian War went, and it has done a really remarkable job of turning itself back into a sort of working class, middle class tourist resort, sort of a maybe in Atlantic City in an American context. But the Trump project was talking about building true luxury properties, properties, um, you know, that, that would cost millions of dollars. And, you know, um, and everything I learned about that town, it, it would have, this one building would have represented basically doubling um, residential construction in the town, it would have represented something like 10 times the price per square foot of the nearest competitor. Um, it just, and and if you think about the kind of multimillionaires, billionaires who might spend a, a huge fortune, they're not interested in going to a town that's filled with blue collar people. So it, it just on its face made so little sense. I mean, I talked to several real estate experts in the area who said to me, I would not think 
I would not even consider that deal for half a second. And so um, it, it just, you know, so what is going on at the Trump organization? Is this simply really subpar due diligence? Well, clearly that's part of it. At the time, there was only a handful of people looking at international deals, and they were doing dozens and dozens of international deals. Um, but it almost makes you wonder, was that part of the business model? Was, hey, we're the developers who will look away and, and we'll do business with you even when no one else will? No, that, that's a that's a great uh, question to end it with, uh, because um, there's generally five steps in in my FCPA world to managing third party relationships. But it but it all starts uh, with a business justification. Why are you doing business with this person? And if you can't articulate a good business justification, that's as big a red flag as any of the others that you articulated from the from the counterparties that the, they may have been involved in nefarious activities, that you can't trace the, the true ownership, you can't trace the beneficial ownership, any of those kind of more traditional due diligence questions. But if you can't answer the basic, why are you doing business in this way, in this place, um, that's you know the first red flag to start with. So I was really intrigued by you know looking at it really from the business model as opposed to some of the other ways you've looked at it and some of the other ways you looked at the uh, – counterparties and third parties in your original article on Trump's worst deal. Um, so that business justification, um, if there really is none in the traditional sense, I think it would point towards towards um, something being wrong. I, I it, it look it, you know, it, it, this is a, a it is tricky when you're talking about the president, um, you know, temp, tempers are very high, but um, you know, I talked to many, many people who knew the knew Mr. Trump long before he was a politician and worked closely with him. And they told me something that I think is just sort of intuitively obvious to most people who, who have observed him as president. He loves quick wins and he's not going to spend a ton of time thinking about them. And, um, Getting, you know, doing the best practices of, of making sure your partners are legitimate and saying no to ready cash because of some fear about risk. That's just that's just not his way of doing business. And if, if you walk into his office and you're ready to hand him a million bucks, which is how much he got for this deal, like a million bucks right away on the day the deal closed, which was a highly unusual amount of money, then, you know, I don't think you're going to get a lot of, um, you know, pushback. Now, you know, I, I did not, you know, I do, I do not make the argument in the piece, and I have no reason to believe that he, that Mr. Trump himself or people at his company were actively um, participating in a money laundering or other fraudulent um, process as sort of drivers of it. But I, I do discuss in the piece, as you know, um, the concept of willful blindness. And at a certain point, when you've done deal after deal like this, um, you know, you you are aiding people who are, are 
you know, seem to have a good chance of being up, up to no good. And that became my theory or a theory that I was developing about what the business might be, which is what the Trump organization's core business offering for these licensing deals. You know, because think about it, why are these people paying a million bucks to put a name on a project that probably isn't ever going to happen? I mean, at least the Azerbaijan deal, a building was built, although it never opened and also was not a very realistic business deal. But I think when when you're talking about extremely risky environments like Azerbaijan, like Georgia, um, having the name of a famous American developer, I think, you know, the perception is that offers you some protection that prosecute, local prosecutors aren't going to be as aggressive with you. Um, as they might otherwise be, um, because boy, well, we don't want to get involved in some U.S. lawsuit, and 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 you know, so um, so that was my hypothesis about what might be going on here. So the um, I guess the other observation might be it, with the business model employed here, which is really licensing, and it's really licensing the name. Um, and you couple that with a business strategy that says, uh, if your cash is green, that's probably going to be good enough for me, that um, the licensing model would allow not a lot of involvement going forward. So it would even allow a, a business model where you're putting in an ultra-luxury hotel in what might be a more of a blue-collar type resort. Uh, the licensing model, uh, if there's no ongoing revenue, really doesn't look at that part of it. So I guess, you know, that that part sort of makes sense to me, <clears throat> although um, it, it doesn't clear up any of the other questions you raise. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in theory, he also had a profit sharing, um, you know, he, he would share in the profits. So he did have an incentive to make it um, be more successful than not. But but all the evidence suggests that this was really at at. In you know between like 2010 and 2015, this was really a volume business. They were they were trying to get as many of these deals as possible, get that upfront payment, and then you know I guess maybe they figured you know one in a while, once in a while one of these will work and we'll get some revenue. But that's not really where we're going to make the money. There was a lot of emphasis uh, um, on that upfront revenue. Um, now, the, just if I could, Tom, mention just the the other thing that to me was really crucial in, in this, in, in the reason I pursued this story is I, I think that there are a few reasons why Robert Mueller might be paying particularly close attention to the Trump, uh, to these hotel deals, particularly the ones in the former Soviet Union. Um, I, I think that there are a couple different reasons I just thought your audience might find interesting. Sure. So um, reason one, well, it's fairly obvious. I mean, you know, Trump spent a lot more time as a, a developer than as a presidential candidate. And, you know, so, um, or as president. Um, but, and, and then reason two would be um, that, it's not entirely clear what law collusion would violate. I mean, it would be, you know, if, if in theory we had absolute unquestioned proof that 
and I'm not obviously I'm not saying we do, but if we had absolute unquestioned proof that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin planned the whole thing together and, you know, it's not entirely clear what law that violates. And it would be very um, it would be a very big test of a constitutional test. But these more plain vanilla crimes, um, FCPA violations, money laundering, etc., cetera, um, these are. These are things prosecutors know how to do. Um, that they're they're crimes that the prosecutors could, you know, start flipping lower level folks at the Trump Organization um, or you know various people who've worked with the Trump Organization. And so I think um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, the point I, that keeps striking me is that Robert Mueller has. One Russian speaker on staff, as far as I know, and, you know, half a dozen or so experts in various financial crimes, including FCPA. And and, and um, that strikes me as, as kind of an indication of where his emphasis is. But in addition, the, the former Soviet Union has a well-established practice of compiling um, – information on basically every sizable business deal. And as it's been explained to me by the scholars who, who look at this, the idea is that um, basically almost everybody who, who becomes very rich in Russia, Kazakhstan, whatever, um, and I didn't really in this interview get into the Kazakhstan connection, but there is a good one um, in this, BT, in this uh, uh, Trump deal. Um, Almost everybody who gets rich, these oligarchs, probably did something illegal, and that's fine. They get to go along, do whatever they want, as long as they're in favor with the leader, with Putin or Nazarbayev or whoever it is. But as soon as they step out of line, as soon as they want their own political power or whatever, suddenly they're arrested on financial crimes. We saw this with Khodorkovsky, for example. And... What many folks told me is it is a guarantee that even if no one in a million years thought he might be president one day, um, a prominent deal in Russia <coughs> that involved several Kazakhs and several Georgians with close Russian ties and involving a famous American developer, that of course the intelligence agencies of all those countries would have a complete dossier um, on that deal. They'd have tons of information. And what that tells us is that if anything untoward happened, and again, I, I think I found a lot of smoke, but I did not find you know the definitive fire. Um, but if something untoward happened, this the Russians would have that information and the Cossacks would have that information. And they would also have a well-established practice of using what they call compromise, compromising material to pressure others. And um, the, 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 the Russia scholars, the former Soviet Union scholars I spoke with said this is a deep, deep concern that they think is a real possibility, that whether it's the Azerbaijan deal or the Georgia deal or his Trump Tower Moscow deal or, or any number of other deals he's done, you know, he always says, I haven't done any deals in Russia, but he's done a lot of deals with Russians um, and near Russia, in the sphere of influence of Russia, um, that that could be used to to blackmail the president, to influence the president, and um, 
you know, again, not saying we know that happened, but it certainly is a deep cause of concern. So, Adam, I was wondering if uh, you might be able to give us any hints of anything uh, that you might be thinking about, writing about, or, or looking into that we might see in the fall of uh, this year? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, honestly, there's a part of me that almost would love to just do deal by deal by deal. I mean, it's really fun, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's a bit of a, like, detective novel experience going through and figuring this all out. But, um but with each one, I really want to learn something new. Um, I'm quite interested right now in his uh, mis- the, the ongoing international deals that the Trump organization has. I mean, you might recall that the president said that he would not initiate new international deals um, while he's president, but that um, there, there were several deals that were sort of in the works um, uh, you know, not not completed buildings, but deals in the works, and these involve some some pretty colorful characters, as you might expect. And these are active businesses um, with some people with real political power, um, with interests that you know I, I don't know that many people would consider to be in line with the interests of the United States, and um, and so I'm that that's sort of where where I'm looking right now. I love tips if anyone has any um, or suggestions of other areas, um, uh, other areas of investigation. Well, Adam, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. But as always, it's a fascinating conversation to visit with you. I have been visiting with Adam Davidson, a staff writer at The New Yorker. He came out with a great piece uh, earlier this year uh, entitled, I think, Trump's Worst Deal. He's continued to follow the uh, money trail of uh, the Trump empire. And uh, we were talking about his latest, one of his latest pieces in The New Yorker entitled Piercing the Veil of Secrecy, Shrouding the Trump Deal in the Republic of Georgia. Adam, as always, thank you very much. Tom, thank you so much. I really like coming on. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this special episode of the Compliance Report International Edition. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help get the word out about the only podcast focusing on the international aspect of compliance. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Report International Edition, and I hope you will join us again for another episode. The Compliance Report International Edition is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.